what am I supposed Whatever to do? Whatever will I do? You know, this is coming... I don't want this to come off as me just, like, of us just, like, making fun of people, but it's like, this is laughable. Hi everyone, welcome to Black Ant, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and also what white people looking to make a difference can do. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a variety of topics surrounding community building, gentrification, and white privilege. Our guest, Shane Claiborne, is a Christian activist and author. He's also one of the founding members of the nonprofit organization The Simple Way uh, in North Philadelphia. But first, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So we touched on this a bit in the past, and it's the topic of gentrification. We talked about it in the context of language before, um, and the way that people who are gentrifying refer to their neighbors and their neighborhoods. But I want to talk about it in a larger, more holistic context. Um, So I just am... um, I've done a lot of writing on this. I've done a lot of interactions with people who... Had a lot of interactions with people who are in the process of gentrifying. They are often young, white professionals who are coming out of college and professional schools and getting jobs in cities, first time getting jobs, um, and they are moving to places where they believe they can afford. And they say, I can't afford to live in the nicest parts of the city, the most quote-unquote developed part of the city parts of the city so I'm living in these neighborhoods that are quote up and coming they are on the turnaround on the mend and that's those are the apartments they can afford those are the houses they can afford and those are in neighborhoods that are being gentrified and and that are turning from black neighborhoods to white neighborhoods Um, so break it down a little bit gentrification is where we throw around all the time Um, and I in just in recent discussions with people I know it means very different things to different people. Right. Um, so let's, will you sort of break it down for people? Sure. So gentrification is the, is a large scale uh, shifting of populations within communities. So, and with those populations are businesses, residences, and communities generally. So usually gentrification occurs in neighborhoods within cities that are populated by black and brown people and the gentrification action is white people moving into those neighborhoods usually um, sort of trickle in in the beginning and then it hits a breaking point where realtors and developers understand that houses in those neighborhoods that white people have shown that they will make the move to live in these uh, neighborhoods the, the, the developers see this and they take action and they start buying up homes and they start um, doing, a lo- doing a lot of things which can be taken as good in certain situations. So building um, new businesses, building new homes, but it comes at a price for the folks who already live there and who'd like to continue to live there because what happens as a result of all of this infused capital and infused interest is that... Um, prices go up for things. So it costs, um, property values go up, which is also a good thing a lot of the time, but not um, in certain circumstances where it leads to folks being priced out of homes that they've lived in for years and years and years. So 
Can you also talk about the communities that are there before gentrification starts? Yeah. Because something that really frustrates me is that term, I like how you put it in quotes, that up and coming, as if right. the community that is there already is not good enough. It's not legitimate yet. Right, until yeah. until white people start coming in and, and making it. And, right, yeah. and quote, developing it. Exactly. So, so what are the communities like before all this so happens? let's be clear. The, often, the communities, the reason that these, these communities are affordable for these white folks that we're talking about and are are fabulous business opportunities for the developers is because the values are already very low. Um, so a lot of the time it is in depressed communities which have been depressed in large part because of white flight that happened back in the 70s and 80s. For those of the listeners who don't know, white flight was this sort of mass um, migration of white people from urban centers out into suburbs. When suburbs became a thing, um, highways became much more... Um, accessible to people and folks could commute into the city to work but didn't live in town. They wanted the picket fence and the big yard and the thing, um, the sort of suburban life that you cannot get from living in a city usually. And red lines. And, well, right. (laughs) And I was going to say, right, so those, so not only is that happening, but, um, but they were able to get mortgages and great fixed rate mortgages for these big pieces of property out in the suburbs and literally black people were not allowed to have those mortgages because of literal red lines that were drawn around certain areas that banks drew around certain areas saying do not give mortgages to black people. And that still happens to an extent today. It is illegal, of course, today. It is illegal to discriminate on the basis of race generally today, but it's something that still definitely happens. And so that leaves black people in the cities. So that leaves black folks in these urban settings, and but with a lot of the the capital and business and um, customer bases and all of the things that a large um, population of white folks with with jobs um, give to a community, that all gets just taken out within a matter of a few years, um, a few decades ago. And so that left a lot of these urban, these urban neighborhoods populated mostly with black and brown people um, and and economically pretty depressed. And so tag on top of that, war on drugs comes into play right, right, uh, around the 80s. And so police figured out that these depressed neighborhoods within cities are the low-hanging fruit. It was places where drugs were being dealt, not in a higher, not, it's important to, to note, not at a at higher, higher rate, rate than mm-hmm. in the suburbs. Every study I've ever seen on drug use uh, shows pretty clearly that black, brown, and white people use and sell drugs at about the same rate. Um, white people actually... I was like, if anything, white more, people are a little actually, more, yeah. Higher, yep. So I'm thinking, like, think about college campuses. Oh, my about, goodness, yeah. Uh, high school parties in the suburbs, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, so drop on top of all of that the war on drugs and, and the explicit manner in which police started policing black and brown communities. And I say it was the low-hanging fruit because it's concentrated population. So you can drive down a block in a cop car and see dozens of people. So it's more opportunity um, to to stop them and frisk them and see if they have these sort of low-level level drug offenses um, that can be used to lock them up. Um, and the, since there's an economic depression that sort of happened in those communities, mm. 
very little access to meaningful legal representation, right? So you think of, a lot of people think, oh, when you get stopped by cops, you call your lawyer, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's what, what lawyer? I, that's what I do. That's what you do because mm-hmm. your brother's a lawyer mm-hmm. and I have lawyer I friends. I have lawyer friends, yeah. And, you know, but, but the average person does not know a criminal defense lawyer, much less could they afford one. Right. Um, it's hundreds of dollars an hour, thousands of dollars an hour sometimes. Yeah. Um, so that's... So you just painted a picture of a neighborhood. So that's a neighborhood, right? So so gentrification is now we've experienced back after it was after. Let's back up, though, because we just painted a pretty nasty picture of poor black and brown people dealing drugs. What we also have there right. <laughs> is a community. Yep. People know each other. Shared experience. People rely on each other. Um, people help each other out. Their kids know each other. Yep. Parents know each other. Yeah. They're probably going to the same schools. So block parties. You know, yeah, and, and that's that's the thing to be celebrated. So so right. So sorry. I am I need to sort of correct myself because I understand that in the way that I was describing that it does make it sound like this is like a, you know, a, a bad uh, that would be a bad area to live in. Mm-hmm. What I hope to make clear is that people use and sell drugs at all the same rate, right? Mm-hmm. So I just noted I noted drugs because human beings use drugs, mm-hmm. right? And um, and the war on drugs is racist. And right, so, and right. so police, that these neighborhoods become police states because the war on drugs Was is targeting and, black and people. law enforcement as a mechanism is a racist uh, institution. institution and framework. Modern policing as we see it today is an offshoot of the policing of fugitive slave laws and fugitive slaves. So the whole patrolling and hunting down um, people who are violating laws in order to put them in cages, that is something that is very... um, Any historian that is being honest about this will tell you that that is traced back to the South where um, cops were given incredible leeway. So that's all to say that, like, that changes the environment of the setting that you just described as this... It's a community where everyone knows each other and they have cookouts and like just are there for each other and have similar shared experiences over top of all of that it is this sort of government police state um that makes it difficult to live there on top of the economic depression that is that is a part of it but yes these communities Mm -hmm. in a lot of sense they're very close-knit often because there is a sort of shared um perspective Mm -hmm. um and just being clear, when white flight happened, it left these communities economically depressed. Gentrification is now, then, the reinsertion of white people into those communities because of this resurgence that we've seen around cities. So cities are cool again. Um, it's not it's not cool and hip for a young person just out of college to start their family in the burbs. Mm-hmm. It's cool for it to happen in cities. A lot of that was because of the sort of economic recession that happened back in 2007 and 8. Um, it's more expensive to live out in, uh, to commute and have a car and have to, you know, put gas in it and um, not not live a few blocks away from where you work in the city. And so white people on the whole are, there's sort of this mass reintroduction into cities. And so with that, there has to be places for them to live and those places the most affordable places to live are these neighborhoods that we've just described that are largely yeah largely black and brown low income that were right that were abandoned by white people with when white flight occurred or were not even were not even uh 
that were pretty well segregated back then, but were in proximity to other neighborhoods and other points of business that did not that infused sort of capital into the into the economy. And so, um, <laughs> what is on my mind is what I hear from young people, you know, from from young professionals that are moving into cities, frustration with with being called out about gentrifying areas. Well, where can I live? What can, where am I supposed to live? Where am I supposed to, you know, um, I have this and this job. I'm a teacher at such and such school and I make $35,000, $45,000 a year. Where else could I afford to live in Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't get mad at me for gentrifying, for being a gentrifier where I am only just trying to, like everyone else is, trying to live. And so that is white people who are taking in, taking part in the process of gentrifying trying to remove race from from the equation that is them saying we're all just trying to survive and live in a cheap and an affordable place what why is what i'm doing bad mm-hmm. and i'll tell you why it's because <laughs> of what we all what we've just described this history that went into these neighborhoods becoming the economic uh ending with the economic status that they have now. Um, and it's because of in- historic institutionalized racism. Multiple, we, we just listed multiple big racist um, sort of uh, frameworks. The war on drugs, white flight. like those were Redlining. All, redlining. Yeah. Those are all things that led to this point right now. And to have white people choose to want to move back to cities now because just having to insert themselves back into communities inserting themselves back into those communities it's like what do you mean what are you supposed to do you're supposed to do anything you can do to not displace people to not displace people of different races because you and the reason they're being displaced is your race Mm -hmm. your your race is what's doing it um so explain to people why... Be, be, and I'll just say, because property values and the va- the literal value of a neighborhood that you can... Things are only worth as much as people will pay for them, right? Like So the value of a neighborhood we've seen goes up when white people get inserted into it because other white people are willing to live there then. That doesn't mean it actually becomes more valuable to, in real life, but what is, what is value other than what people right. pay for it? So sorry. Well, yeah, so... Can you also, like, talk about why this is not unfair for white people now? You know, saying when someone says, well, I can't afford to live anywhere else. What are they supposed to do then? So it's like, first of all, yes, you can. You just don't (laughs) want to, right? Right. So you mean you can't afford to live anywhere anywhere else alone and with a full house to Mm -hmm. yourself, right? You don't mean you couldn't afford to live in a two-bedroom apartment with a roommate somewhere else, right? Right. Um, that's not what you mean. You just don't want to do that. And so we say all the time, April, that fighting white supremacy and dismantling it and being an effective ally, you will know you're doing it well when you experience negative, what will feel like negative consequences or negative repercussions to your own life. One of the consequences that white people who seek to not gentrify and to not displace black people and brown people will have to pay is more money 
to live somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you pay more money so that you're not displacing people. Or live in a, go live in a community. There are some communities that are racially mixed but aren't going anywhere. They're mm-hmm. not getting more economically depressed and they're not really growing at a speed that it, economically, at a speed that is faster than the rate of the city itself, mm-hmm. generally. So a lot, I get a lot of pushback also by people saying, oh, so you want people to be segregated. You you still want people to be segregated. You're saying white people shouldn't move, Jonathan, white people yeah. shouldn't move in to black people's neighborhoods. I thought you said, you know, close, intimate relationships with, with black people were the key to moving forward mm-hmm. with dismantling racism. Yeah. Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and yeah. yes. Happy to be called out, but not happy to be called out by white people when I'm telling them that moving into a certain neighborhood is going to displace a black family, probably. Right. Um, and so, yes, intimate relationships are key, I think. Intimate interracial relationships, romantic or otherwise, are key to moving forward and are key to giving providing white people, I think, the moral and sort of, like, incentive to want to fix this because the black and brown people in their lives whom they love will be affected by racism, so you should want to fix it. Um, Yes. Apply that to gentrification as well. Yes, you should have black and brown friends, and you should care about them, and you should have close people in your life. So that means you should care when your presence is making people have to leave their neighborhood, and your interest in a neighborhood that just happens to be friendly and just happens to have a very cool little uh, cool little restaurants that just opened up that are getting a lot of shine because they're inexpensive places to have cool little restaurants. Um, when you enjoying those things are making it such that black and brown people who have lived there for generations and who have stayed in those neighborhoods for generations throughout white flight, throughout the war on drugs, and still made it work, when you're making them leave now because your whim of wanting to move back into a neighborhood where you can afford, quote unquote, um, is more important to you than those relationships with those folks. And so um, it is a delicate line to cross. It's a delicate balance, I think. Um, I also think this is a good illustration of, (laughs) this is just a small tangent, a, a good illustration of another big aspect of race and whiteness is that white people can choose whether to interact with black and brown mm-hmm. people, it's a choice mm-hmm. whether they want to. You know, do I want to move into this neighborhood or do I want to move into this other neighborhood? Exactly. Whereas black and brown people, there are a few exceptions, but in order to be a successful um, professional and a member of society working at a job, black and brown people have to interact with white people because they're at those jobs and they are at those, you know. And so, and the same is not true for for I've worked with like you know white lawyers for example who are only only work with other lawyers and they're mm-hmm. all white and their bosses are all white and their secretary is white mm-hmm. and the people who you know clean the building are white the people who um, you know the electricians that work in the building are white they don't have to interact with black or brown people unless they want to mm-hmm. um, and so this that's why I say like you know I, I refer to it sort of white people get on this whim of like moving wanting to move into a city because it just had they do a search of the prices of the of rent mm-hmm. and it's the cheapest place that just decision to do that is ruining black and brown people's lives it's uprooting them from everything that they know so i take a very hard line stance with gentrification and the point is okay you move into a town because you get a new job after college and you need to find a place to live. 
if you have to move into one of these neighborhoods, if you have to move into a neighborhood where you're the only white person and in the next year or so, then it's half white people right. and the next year after that, right? You know, like it, it's, that's just sort of how this goes. You need to make every single effort you can make to make sure your eyes are open and you are getting to know the people in the community. You are, you are making it known that you are, you're new. You are new to the community. You are eager to learn about what this community has been like for the past however many years. Talk to the elders in the community. Introduce yourself. There's an old lady that lives on your block. Be a respectful young person and be, and, and don't err, don't skew toward not talking to your neighbors because they're black mm-hmm. and brown. And then take the next step and advocate for them. For your neighborhood, go to the the city council meetings, go to the block leader meetings and listen and learn. And when there is a vote in support of the community, you raise your hand when there's a developer who wants to come and, you know, tear down 15 homes on a block and build these huge condos or to build a damn Whole Foods. You vote no and you speak up for your community. Another thing is there just has to be this sense of, even if it's not natural to you, even if it's not a part of your personality to get to know your neighbors, it's not a part of your personality to interact with them and get to know the history of a neighborhood that you lived in, things are different when you're a white person moving into a black neighborhood. You need to show some deference and some respect to not only people who have lived there for longer, because that just seems like the right thing to do, but also people who have weathered a sort of economic and racial storm over the past few decades because your parents pieced out from, from urban settings to move to the suburbs and took all their capital and money with them. And so you are stepping back into this as someone who, in your mind, has a total right to do this because you can do whatever you want. Um, there are just implications that come along and considerations that come along with your presence that um, that you should keep in mind. And it, everything should be erring on the side of being respectful, overly respectful. It will feel unnatural, probably, to show, to, to exhibit that type of respect outwardly to people who... Um, to people who you're just meeting, it might come off as disingenuous. You have to work on that. You have to make sure that it does not come off as disingenuous because who likes that? You know, Mm -hmm. like who is who that comes off, that does more harm than good. Don't be shocked if they're not thrilled to see you there because they very likely know that your presence there means they're almost at a point where they're going to be forced to leave. If a critical mass of white people show up in that neighborhood, it will happen. April, just this street the year that you've lived here. Oh, yeah. I've, I... Looks I, totally I, different. It is totally yeah. different. So all that is to say, go back to go back to the, the this hypothetical white professional who says, well, where am I supposed to live, John? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you live somewhere where you're not, where you're not displacing yeah. people. Have a, have to just live on your own, but pay a little more and make some cuts to other places of your life where you can... Uh, where you can sacrifice. Remember, giving up the benefits of your whiteness should not be comfortable. Why would it be comfortable? If it were comfortable, it'd be easy to do and racism would be over. That's what's on my mind. And that is... It's so close because it's happening right now. Right. Well, and the, and the, 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 the 
throw your hands up in the air. What am I supposed to do? Whatever will I do? You know, this is coming. I don't want this to come off as me just like of us just like making fun of people. But it's like this is laughable. The fact that you don't you can't think of anything you can do other than displace black and brown people. That seems unworkable to me. So let's get real. You want to solve this problem, solve it. You are taking part in a larger framework that ruins people's lives. And so you have to, if, if you're deciding whether to buy a new home in a city and you got this great deal in this great house, but it's in the middle of a neighborhood that's uh, up and coming, quote unquote, Think about what the next five years of you living there will mean for your neighbors and the race of your neighbors and what and and the permanency of permanence permanence mm-hmm. of their of their life there. Um, and it's because of your presence, not just your presence by itself. It's your presence as a white person. That is what changes the values here statistically. That's what it does. Um, and so um, there's no fix here. There's no, my, my, my advice and my wish is like, stop gentrifying white people, just stop. But there is some good development that is occurring in a lot of neighborhoods that have been economically depressed. And there's good development by white people that is occurring in those neighborhoods. That's why I'm excited for our interview today. All that is to say, Gentrification has been on my mind a lot recently, and it's a complicated topic. Um, I've written about it in the past. I know you have too. Um, And it's something that people just need to keep in mind. People who are would-be racial allies, who are white, should keep in mind in the context of their overall allyship efforts. If you're being a knockdown, drag-out ally in every sense of the word, but you're displacing black and brown people because of your choice of neighborhood, that's really something to think about. And it's really something to to examine examine and guard against. Yeah, absolutely. End of rant. Damn. Okay. Well, after the break, we will have a conversation with Shane Claiborne. So welcome, Shane. We're so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, it's great to be with y'all. Um, so I think it's best to start, um, if you could give our listeners just overview of your background, your uh, professional and uh, and personal background and, and how you came to be doing what you're doing today. Yeah, well, I'm a Tennessee boy. In fact, I, I'm down in uh, at my folks place in east tennessee just ate some okra and shelly beans and cornbread from the garden. my goodness <laughs> feeling, oh, yeah. feeling real good right now um <laughs> uh but I, I i grew up down here and then i ended up going up to eastern university uh to go to college uh and then i've, I've done some work at wheaton university outside chicago and uh, Princeton. So that's about as professional as I get. I got an honorary doctorate from Eastern. I, I always say like, I'm not sure I want an honorary surgeon, you know, do, <laughs> on me, but that's what it, for what it's worth. Um, and I, I, um, I, I, I guess what I've really felt, um, in my own life is, is the importance of studying, 
sociology and the Bible. So that's kind of been my emphasis. And I, I like how Karl Barth said, we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other. Mm-hmm. So our our faith doesn't just come, become a, a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. Uh, you know, so that's always sort of been the things I've held together. Uh, and, and then we started a community up in, in Philly during, while we were in college, there was a group of homeless families, uh, mostly moms and children that were living in an abandoned Catholic church building, an old cathedral uh, in North Philadelphia. And it, it was really that that sparked our community life in North Philly. Um, we, we organized a student movement to come alongside those families in the back in the 1900s in the <laughs> late 90s. So, yeah, it's, that's how we got going in Philly. So I fell in love with Philly and just ended up staying there. Been been building a community on the north side for 20 years now. And have you have you been on the north side for for most of the time? Most of your stay in Philly? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so you, you guys are up in Kensington, right? Yeah, that's the name of our neighborhood. You know, Philly's got a bunch of different little neighborhoods that uh, uh, used to be kind of autonomous. You know, you could see the school, you know, you take an aerial view, you'd see the school and the cathedral and the, uh, you know, the stores and the factories that kept, and we've we've lost so many jobs, over a hundred thousand jobs in North Philly. So um, it's a neighborhood that is community rich and economically poor and, uh, but a place that I'm really proud to call home. So, Tell us more about uh, the simple way in your community up there. What do you guys, what do you guys do? Um, yeah, week to week, day to day. How are you impacting the community? Yeah. So after the we the the standoff in the cathedral, uh, I mean, sadly, what ended up happening was the Catholic Church gave these families 48 hours to get out of the cathedral, or they could be arrested mm-hmm. for for trespassing. And uh. <laughs> You know, that, so, and these so, were homeless so, families. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the media made it look like the church was kicking homeless people out, and that's because the church was kicking homeless people right. out. You know, right. They hung a banner on the front of the cathedral. The moms did that said, "How can you worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday?" Mm. Uh, so, so that was really the catalyst that pulled us together as students. Um, and many of those families got housing, and we ended up moving into the neighborhood uh, as we graduated college and stuff like that. So I live just a couple miles from that old cathedral, and we've been building a neighborhood, uh, sort of a village over the past 20 years that's um, everything from community gardens and painting murals and helping kids with homework and um uh, we, we do affordable housing, share a lot of food with families that need it. Uh, so we're, we're pretty holistic in our idea of community development. And, um, and, and that's, uh, that's also taken us into the realm of justice, you know, cause we always say we want to f- give people food, but we w- want to also ask why people are hungry to begin with. So when, so uh, for our listeners, just so we're clear, I've had the opportunity to go up and sort of take a tour of this vi- sort of, as you call the village that you guys have put together, this community. Um, and it really is something, the sort of, um, you know, network of, you know, buildings that you have in this little, um, this little few block area. And everyone sort of knows everyone as you and I, Shane, walked around the neighborhood. I was struck by how, you know, young kids of all different, you know, uh, you know, races and religions came up to you and and know, knew you on a first name basis. So when you say community 
it feels like you really mean it in the in the true sense and not just community meaning any old gathering. There are people around. Right, any, yeah. any, right there just are people around. Um, and so can you speak for a little bit on to our sort of sort of put some meat on the bones in terms of what all physically is up there? What are the what what is the what does the community consist of? Who uh, you know what are the services that you all provide to the folks in that area and how do you interact with them on a sort of day-to-day personal basis? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to, to be really frank, uh, some of our cues, especially early on, we took from uh, your grandfather, you know, from Dr. Perkins and CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association. And mm-hmm. so when we think when, when we think about our neighborhood, the language that's been helpful is that um, our community at the simple way is made up of remainers, returners and relocators. Right. So uh, mm-hmm. folks that have stayed in the neighborhood that have a lot of a lot of pressure to move out, you know, um, and uh, folks like a lot of our young people. We have one young person a year that we scholarship to college, so a lot of them uh, kind of don't forget where they come came from, and they bring their gifts and resources back to the neighborhood. And then relocators, you know, folks like myself that are not from the neighborhood, but we come in and hopefully come in with the right posture to listen and learn and build on mm. uh, the, the gifts that are that are there in our neighborhood. Um, and the other thing that we've, we've learned, um, too, is, is this idea that you can give someone a fish and they'll eat for a day. You teach them to fish, they'll eat for the rest of their life. But we also have to ask, who owns the pond, you know, mm. and why does a fishing license cost so much? And what, what does equity really look like in our neighborhood? And how can we grow our own food and things like that? So, um, yeah, we, we've, um, we, we've really experimented with a lot of that over the years. So we've done aquaponics, you know, growing uh, fish and, and plants together, uh, growing like gardens with with uh, right now it's really cool in philly because our kids have we have what we call a play street permit so the we can close the block to cars and the kids can play in the street and we can open the fire hydrants but you know we also get city lunches so the kids come every day to get lunch and they can they can pick in, in addition to the city lunch, they can go and get blackberries and uh, grapes, you know, and pick food out of the garden. So, and when you say kids, Shane, you mean anyone, any kids in the community in the area? Yeah, yeah, kid, yeah, yeah, the young people on our block. And when we, you know, in a few weeks here, we'll throw a back to school party that's like an epic. Uh, it's hard to get, you know, real excited about going back to school, <laughs> but, but we'll have, you know, a thousand kids out there and pastors from a lot of the neighborhood congregations that'll just offer blessings over our kids. And it's just, just a big celebration. So we're trying to build up, um, we say a neighborhood that we're proud, we can be proud to call home. And, um, and we're very aware that like a lot of these issues like drug addiction, um, they are also economic issues, you know, so we, we, we can't just tell kids not to sell drugs on the corner if we don't, if we don't have a, another way that they can provide for their families. So we're, we're pretty holistic in how we think of uh, building up our neighborhood together. Yeah. And it, you mentioned, you know, the people sort of outside of your community that you're, that you uh, interact with. I wonder do you get any sort of inquiries or pushback or people just straight up confused about what what it is you're doing in, in the community? People who are outside of it, who are, you know, only only seeing from the outside? 
Um, well, our, our neighborhood, the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia is often referred to as the Badlands. Um, but I, I usually correct people if they call it that. So I, I really do like think our, I mean, certainly our neighborhood is stigmatized partly because we've got 700 abandoned factories. You know, we've lost, uh, um, a hundred thousand jobs and, and we're, we're really the hub of the opioid crisis uh, that took, right. you know, last year, 1200 lives. So it's very real that we, we have struggles, but like I said, I think it's also a place that's very, um, community rich and people have survived off of really relying and trusting each other. Um, and, and so we've learned that from our neighborhood after we had this huge fire, uh, 10 years ago, it burnt, it was started in one of the abandoned city owned factories, burnt our whole block down. And after the fire, uh, the Red Cross came because it was a seven alarm fire as big as they get. It burned down uh, a bunch of our houses. Uh, about 100 families were affected. So the Red Cross set up a shelter. And then they came and they said, you got to hear this. They said, no, nobody ended up staying in the shelter because everybody in your neighborhood opened their homes up to each other. And literally, wow. like one of my neighbors saw all the folks with their dogs and cats out on the sidewalk. And she said, okay, I'll be the emergency pet shelter. Bring them all over. You know, we're like, Jeez. God bless you. You know, and like people started cooking and taking care of each other. So, um, it, you know, I, I, I'm really I've really been learning community and survival there. And it, when uh, one of the times that the, the stock exchange was crashing, you know, and everybody thought we were going into a recession, one of my neighbors said, oh, no matter what happens on Wall Street, we've still got each other. And we've been he said, uh, my people have been in a recession for over 200 years mm -hmm. and we know can make it through, you know, so there's a really deep faith and resilience. Um, and, and honestly, our neighborhood's really mixed too. We've got, um, uh, a lot of Latino families, uh, Puerto Rican and, uh, Dominican families, a lot of African-American families and a lot of older, uh, white families that came from Poland and Ireland, many of them, and they used to work in the factories. And the only pushback we've had in the neighborhood, um, especially in the early days came from some of that older white population that had sort of a nostalgia of how the neighborhood used to be. And certainly um, some internalized racism and fear and things like that. So we had to figure out, you know, what does it mean to love this neighbor, you know, as I right. want to be loved. So we tried to build some bridges, uh, you know, wherever we could. Yeah. So as you say, the, the, as you mentioned, the, the older white folks in the neighborhood, that that was the only place you got pushed back. April and I, you can't see this, but looked at each other and just sort of shook our heads because that's what that is, you know, what we would expect. Right. That is the, that's what we all know in terms of the, the demographics in cities that have given the most historically given the most pushback to, to change and, and um, community building, um, at least from from what I've seen anyway. Um, but that's a good segue um, because our, you know, this podcast is about race after all. Um, so I'm, I'd be interested to know what, how your race and your, your, uh, sort of status as a white man, um, has affected, if at all, the way you look at, at social justice and, and issues of racism and, and inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think to answer that, probably it would be helpful to rewind just a little bit and say mm -hmm. that the town I grew up in, East Tennessee, um, Maryville, East Tennessee, outside of Knoxville, um, um, it, it, it was a very small, segregated town. And my high school 
was the Maryville High School Rebels. And so we had the Confederate Jeez. flag on, <laughs> on thing. I mean, we had the Confederate flag on football uniforms, on our, you know, on murals on our walls. Um, and and so I my my kind of enlightenment on this came when I, I went to Eastern and I put my high school yearbook on the bookshelf uh, in college. And one of my my floor mates was like, dude, what is that? You know, I had the Confederate flag on it. And I was like, that's Jeez. my high school yearbook. And he's like, that's also not cool, man. Like, you know, that's right. not just not just about, you know, football spirit or something. Right. And, and, um, and I, I really leaned into that. So it's part of, I think, why I was drawn to study sociology and, um, and also to, to get to know people that look different from me from the very beginning, you know, of my college career. Part of what was exciting to me was to, um, to listen and learn from folks who had seen the world differently. And I, I, I began to really see the truth of a, a old kind of cliche I heard growing up, which is our worldview is shaped by what we see out the window. And when our window changes, our worldview changes. I think it's also true of our theology, you know, but I like I grew up in East Tennessee hearing um, about police officers as heroes and, and mm-hmm. those those stories were true. You know, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be a police officer. Um, I came up to Philly and my window changed and my world changed. You know, I, I began to, especially as I moved into Kensington, um, see some things that horrified me uh, coming from police officers. Thing, I mean, some of the scariest moments in our neighborhood um, uh, came involved the police and, and people I love and care about. And mm-hmm. so... I, you know, I think it's part of why we have such um, a fault line around race in our country is that we're literally seeing the world through different windows, different lenses. And so you ask, you know, questions like, um, you know, does racial bias affect our criminal justice system or our policing of neighborhoods? And overwhelmingly, white folks say, no, no, you got a few bad apples. But I mean, the right. system generally works. You know, you ask, you know, people of color and the answer is exactly the opposite, you know. Um, so uh, in, in Philadelphia, there's a lot of things that I began to um, be mentored in from uh, um, elders and, and especially, um, elders of color folks that were neighborhood pastors and, um, and one young man that, I mean, it became a good friend, but he's, he, you know, confessed to me, he said, initially I, I had some issues with, with what y'all were doing in the neighborhood because he said, I grew up in this neighborhood and he's a, he's a pastor in the neighborhood. He said, I grew up here, became a pastor here. And, uh, everybody, all of my peers think I'm a failure because I didn't move out of Kensington. And he said, I began to see all your peers think that you're a hero because you moved into Kensington. And mm-hmm. if we're not, if we're not careful, you know, one person's clout comes at the cost of another person's dignity. And so we had to be really careful with how we frame the narrative of what we're doing in the neighborhood that it, you know, a lot of people want to tell the story of how a bunch of, uh, you know, white folks and suburban college students moved into this neighborhood and they're saving Kensington or something. And, um, it's one, not true. And also really, really hurtful to the dignity of so many other neighborhood leaders and, and people I, I love and, uh, in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So that is that is uh, really closely related to what I wanted to touch on next, which is so, you know, we talk about gentrification a lot on this podcast and generally um, and you sort of alluded to it there, you know, this notion of white people moving into a neighborhood and sort of uprooting everything and changing the way that um, the whole neighborhood operates. So 
you know, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your community and the organization um, that you that you have in Kensington, you know, which was, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, set up and sort of founded by by you and and other white people um, in a neighborhood that is very mixed. And so I wonder if you, you know, do you think what you are doing constitutes gentrification or do you think that it is it is something that you're doing um, with such a close eye toward what the the cues of your neighbors and the cues of the community um, that it is that you're doing it sort of the right way. I have to I have to assume you think you're doing it the right way. And I, I think you are, too, just to be just to make that clear. <laughs> um, but if you, you know, could talk a little bit about those cues and, and sort of not, you know, framing the sort of narrative of what you're doing, like you said, um, I'd be interested to, to, to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Sure, man. Well, so I, there's plenty of things that we've learned and mistakes that we've made, you know, through 20 years of living um, in Kensington. But uh, what one of the things that we started with was we need to, like, just live here and listen to and learn from folks who already live here and build on what they're already doing. So we didn't start any new programs uh, for years. You know, we, we mm. also... Uh, didn't start a worship service because we said the last thing that we need is another church plant in our neighborhood. Like there's churches everywhere. So we're going to join what they're already doing and not, we're not going to do a Sunday service. There's, there's plenty of those. Um, And so we uh, began to build into the fabric of the neighborhood. um, And, and we're, we're really, we've really, I think one of the things that we've done well is become master collaborators, right? So Hmm. when we had folks with it, that were in active addiction living in our home, um, that was really hard. And we started going, why, why are we so bad at this? And we're like, well, for starters, none of us has used heroin, you know, like, like we we Hmm. don't know how to how to beat this addiction and so we built a relationship with a recovery community um that where where folks are you know that are leading it are in nine years uh, you know in in uh in in soberness and in sobriety and 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 you know so that like has been a part of who we are um and a lot of our best things that we can point to have been started by folks in the neighborhood. So some young pastors in the neighborhood said, you know, some of these young guys need mentors um, and need older men in their lives. And they started a mentoring deal called Timoteo, which is Spanish for Timothy, you know, and kind of pointing to Paul and Timothy's relationship in the Bible of a mentoring relationship. And now there's like 400 uh, young guys that are wow. being mentored by older guys. It's a, it turned into a sports league, uh, naturally. And, you know, but it's awesome. And all we did was kind of incubate that while it, you know, grew its own wings. And it's the same with the new sanctuary movement in Philly, a massive movement, um, around sanctuary and hospitality to immigrants, immigrant justice in Philadelphia. So we incubated that while it became its own nonprofit. So that's, that, that's the stuff I'm really pumped about. Um, and, and, then when it comes to like housing, we we found it really hard, the power dynamics of being a friend and a landlord. And so mm-hmm. we had to learn uh, how to do that because we really wanted to um, not gentrify the neighborhood in the sense of displacing people um, as, you know, we do this great work because probably half of our uh, block was abandoned when we moved in. And so we fixed up house after house 
and now there's very few abandoned houses. But what we've been trying to do is figure out ways that that can um, build up the neighbors that have been there longer than I have. So, for instance, what we're doing now is um, we have an affordable housing program where we get abandoned houses, turn them into beautiful homes, and the families themselves do um, the work on it. So our motto is, uh, uh, we won't build a house for you, but we'll build a house with you together, you know, and, and we finance it at zero interest. We sell the houses for $35,000. Each family does 350 hours on their house. And so it's a beautiful model of, um, creating affordable housing. We didn't think all that. We just tried to look at the best practices in other places. But we also found that we had to fight the systemic stuff. So we have a coalition in Philadelphia around gentrification. That's uh, the whole the whole vision of it is development without displacement. So mm -hmm. to develop the abandoned spaces without displacing people. So there's things like um, uh, attacks on uh, for-profit development that flips houses within two years. And it's just like a 2% tax, but that creates like $12 million a year that goes to affordable housing. Um, you know, there's, uh, landlords that we had one landlord in our neighborhood that owned 300 houses. So we're kind of challenging mm -hmm. the absentee landlords and trying to get underneath, uh, that to create more home ownership, you know, and, um, and, and other neighbors that are not ready to own homes to walk with them, you know, where they are. I've, I've got one neighbor that's been renting a house for like $300 a month for 15 years or something. I'm like, hold what you got, man, you know. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's also things like the homestead. We've got this homesteader thing. Uh, I think it's just called the uh, Homesteader uh, Act in Philly, where what it does is it locks in your property value and it locks in your real estate tax uh, mm -hmm. technically on the books. So that makes sure as property values go up, um, it, it, you're, you know, it doesn't displace people because they can't pay their, their real estate taxes. And, uh, and if they do need to sell their house then they can still do it. Cause it's just really, it's kind of a, I think we've got to be really thoughtful in how we, uh, counter gentrification. Cause certainly the, the, uh, the, uh, folks that are trying to make profits are very shrewd in how they're doing that. So I think we've got to be really, um, um, wise in how we battle, uh, to protect the folks that live in the neighborhood. And do you think that it, there's something special about uh, Kensington as a neighborhood in general, or could this sort of practice or this idea be mimicked in other neighborhoods around Philadelphia or in other cities? So we're sitting in Point Breeze right now, Shane, and it's a, which is another neighborhood in Philadelphia for listeners who don't know, and it is becoming all the more notorious for the the exact opposite of what you just described, which is just these houses being flipped and folks being displaced. Yeah, well, I mean, Philadelphia has so many neighborhoods that are the textbook example of how to, to do development um, terribly and unjustly. <laughs> you know, I mean, Northern Liberties and right. so many areas. I mean, one of the things I've done with folks that are thinking about housing is I'll walk them through our neighborhood. And literally on our block, you can buy a house for $35,000. Um, or, I mean, I just had a friend that bought a house for $500 that needed work. So that's kind of our market, right? But then right. as you walk one block at a time, the houses go up $10,000 a block to the point where when you get about a mile away, the houses are uh, $300,000 for the exact same, you know, two-story 
uh, row house uh, that that we have on our block. So I I, I think that we it's almost like gentrification is what's going to happen by default. Uh, and so we've got to be really, really organized uh, to fight it. And, you, and I think sometimes it gets so late in the game, the flood's already coming. And so, you mm. know, once you got a couple of those hip coffee houses and uh, <laughs> right. vegan grocery stores or whatever, you know, it's, so it's, you know it's, there's it's, a Whole Foods. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, I mean, we want some of the best of, uh, of the, the like we want locally grown food and things like that. So that's where we you know, I think the development without displacement language becomes really helpful. Like we we want our kids to have uh, some of those same opportunities. I mean, Philly, I mean, what's unique about Kensington, I think, too, is that we are the epicenter of the heroin economy. Um, and it's literally like the second largest economy in our neighborhood, eight of the like 10 biggest drug corners are there. So that that's a unique Jeez. thing that's, that's happened over the last 10 years. And man, it's, it's brutal. So that's what, you know, I mean, that's one of the things, frankly, that also, um, keeps people from just, uh, you know, being drawn right into our neighborhood. So we're trying to figure out how to, you know, protect our kids from that because most of the buyers are not from our neighborhood. You know, we don't have many heroin users that are in our neighborhood, but they're coming from the interstate, you know, from New York, Jersey and um, Maryland and stuff to buy drugs in our neighborhood. So we're uh, trying to figure all that out right now. It's a pretty big mess. Wow. So it's it's very easy to see all, you know, the the good things that you guys are doing and the positive impacts that you're making on on Kensington and the surrounding neighborhoods. But what are have there been any mistakes made that have stayed with you over the, you know, last few years that have have really gone to impact the work you're doing now, things that you've learned from? I, I think that sometimes there's we're, we're always trying to get our feet on the like figure out the equilibrium or the balance between um, the programs that we run and the justice stuff that we do. So um, there's times where I think, man, we should have done more around, you know, the school to prison pipeline that like we've, we've had dozens of schools go bankrupt in our neighborhood. Um, we've got 3%, we've, we've got almost half of our kids dropping out of high school. Um, and 3% of our neighborhood has anything post high school. So an associate's or bachelor's degree is only 3% of our neighborhood. So there's definitely things I think we could do a whole lot better, um, but like I said, I think that's where partnerships come in because we're not going to be able to do everything. And um, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, build that unity and find the best folks that are doing um, job placement, the best folks that are doing recovery and build those bridges. Um, I mean, I think that looking back, uh, um, we set the bar so high of what community uh, look like intentional community that we we started a community in the neighborhood and what we found you know a few years into it is what we really want to do is build a community uh, with the neighborhood and within the neighborhood and that's where we kind of um, decentralize things from like the big um, community on the corner to where now we're all sprinkled on the block and we have a big community space that we can share. So all that movement has been, I think, to kind of correct that and figure out how to have a, a more 
uh, diverse and egalitarian, you know, community that is made up of, of the remain remainers, returners, relocators, kind of, uh, folks all mixing together and finding our way. Um, so Mm. yeah, I mean, I guess I always feel like we could do more. We still have such tremendous gun violence, you know, and, um, uh, but it's like I said, I think we're, we're just, Sometimes I just have to. My, my wife's taught me well that um, she she homeschooled a, a little nine year old girl for a year, and someone said to her, "Well, aren't there a bunch of other kids that need this?" And she said, essentially, uh, "Well, I do for one kid what I wish I could do for all of them, and I can't, you know." And so we yeah. we really just see like our own limitations, and we try to do what we can on our block and trust that other people are doing great things on their block. So. I'd like to, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit um, and talk about a little bit more of your history. So I know, and you and I have never spoke about this, and I meant to ask you previously, you know, you gained some notoriety over the, for a number of things over the years, but one of them was your refusal to, uh, to pay up uh, taxes or a portion of your taxes, um, because of the fact that that money would be used for violence or war. So first, you know, correct me if I don't have that right. But second, yeah, I'd love to hear about that sort of process and decision that you made. Sure. Well, I I have uh, always struggled with the um, the military spending, you know, and the portion of our tax dollars that go towards the military uh, and and um, as. Dr. King said, you know, every, every time a bomb goes off overseas, we feel the second impact of it as our neighborhoods go bankrupt here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, I think the the economic draft, you know, that, that the military kind of is predatorial uh, among uh, neighborhoods that, you know, suffer economically. I mean, they, ca- they come door to door in our neighborhood with flyers that say, um, Everybody wants you to go to college. They just don't tell you how to do it. Join the Navy. You know, so I, I think we don't we don't we Jeez. may not have we may not have a draft in America, but we have an economic draft, you know, for for many folks that they end up there. So we, we really wanted to build something different. So I, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, sometimes we have to our, our ideologies need teeth on them. And I, a number of us began to do war tax resistance. So um, by I always believe in transparency, which I think it would be really nice to see Donald Trump's taxes for that reason, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. I've always been transparent with mine, but what we did for a while, what I did was um, uh, take the percentage of taxes uh, that would go to the military and write a check to organizations that are doing incredible work for nonviolence um, and for um, restorative justice, especially in areas of conflict. So kind of the work of peace. Um I did that really transparently. So I wrote them a letter and the, uh, the weirdest thing happened. I was expecting, uh, you know, to have some kind of blowback from it, but the, uh, uh, in the end, the IRS wrote me a letter and said, we've looked at all your income and back, uh, payments and stuff. And we, um, we found that we owe you money. Oh, <laughs> wow. I don't, know, I don't know that that could happen for everybody, but they wrote, you say. might be the only person in America. <laughs> then, then my dilemma became like, should I cash this check or right. you know, give it away? So, I mean, basically what we've tried to do is limit our income 
um, so that we're below the, the taxable income or so that we pay as little money towards military spending as possible and we can put as much money towards the things that really matter because we can always give money towards the, the schools and the other great things happening in our neighborhood. So I, I believe in generosity, which is why I, um, I cap my income off I have a set living stipend that doesn't change. And no matter how much money I make uh, or generate from speaking and writing, all that goes to fuel nonprofits and community work. Um, so that's uh, that's how we sort of manage to do that these days. Um, and uh, and I'm, you know, very concerned about our budget. I mean, if you if a budget is a moral document, I think we could look at the the budget of the the. Um, U.S. government, you know, and see some very disturbing things about where our priorities are. <laughs> yes, this is very true. Um, you you mentioned justice earlier when we first began speaking and your work um, on the death penalty. And we actually just, just did an episode on the death penalty speaking with uh, Hannah Riley. Can you tell our listeners about the work that you're doing um, and have done dealing with the death penalty? Sure. Well, it's, uh, I, I can start by saying the reason I'm down here in Tennessee is, is actually because there is an execution plan tomorrow. Um, and I have been, uh, over the years, uh, had the chance to go into Riverbend's Unit 2, which is Tennessee's death row. And I've gotten to know these guys um, uh, from visiting over the years. And it um, it's hard to explain the horror of watching... Um, uh, the state take life. You know, I, 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 one of my close friends was executed last, uh, just a few weeks ago and, um, his story starts hard. You know, I, I believe that he's guilty of the crime he was convicted of. He, um, he was convicted of killing his wife. And yet over a period of years, he did so much work to try to, um, heal those wounds. He, you know, really became a committed, um, Christian and tried to build a bridge with his daughter who was estranged because he had killed her mother. And she actually ended up, um, um, uh, originally for the death penalty and over the years became a strong advocate against it. Um, so then, you know, um, we were hopeful that a new governor in Tennessee would, uh, who ran for office saying he talked to Jesus every day, he's a man of faith. And so we really tried to appeal to his faith and conscience. And, uh, and yet um, uh, Governor Bill Lee executed Don Johnson. And as that happened, I mean, it did something to me. You know, um, I, I was with Don like three days before he was killed and prayed with him, and he prayed for the governor. He prayed for all of us to keep up our work uh, for alternatives to the death penalty. And I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And he wow. said, no, no matter what happens to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to praise Jesus until there's no breath left in my body. And that's exactly what he did. When they offered him his final meal, he fasted. He asked if he could go without the final meal and give the $20 allotment to the homeless. Uh, when uh, the, the governor went to execute him, um, he asked the prison warden if he could sing as he died. And Jeez. so his last words were literally singing the old hymn soon and very soon. 
And the words, uh, as you may know, are soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. Jeez. There's no there's no more dying there. There's no more crying there. I'm going to see the king. And so I look at that situation. I think it just exposed the absolute horror of state violence. Um, and, 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 it, and I think it surfaces some of the most fundamental questions of our faith, um, which is, do we believe in redemption? Um, do we believe that we are more than the worst thing we've ever done? What, what breaks my heart in this is that the Bible Belt is the death belt in America. 85% of executions are happening in the Bible Belt, states like Texas and Tennessee. And, and, and it's so counterintuitive, you know, that folks that, you know, we, we say that we're pro-life, but we've so narrowed that down to one issue of abortion uh, that it, it, it's, it, it's mind-boggling that folks could say that they are pro-life and still be pro-death penalty, pro-guns, pro-military, you know, right. and, have a, and have a hard time saying Black Lives Matter, right? Like, it's just a, it's a, it's a crazy thing. So I, I also know that this is not unrelated to our history of slavery and racism in America, right? So the same states that are executing right. today are the same states that held on to slavery the longest. And and literally, like we can see... And lynched uh, the most black men. Exactly. Where, where, where executions are happening today is exactly where lynchings were happening 100 years ago. Uh, so there, that, that, you know, is, is also, but then, you know, tomorrow the state of Tennessee plans to use the electric chair to kill Stephen West. Wow. And so th this is, um, this is a big issue. And, and I think particularly whether, um, especially on the death penalty, but also on guns, Christians have been the problem rather than the solution. They've been the obstacle to life rather than the champions of it. And that's why I feel, especially as a Christian, the need to challenge uh, the death penalty and uh, gun violence. I mean, Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. We are for the death penalty at a higher rate than the general population. So I think that that must break the heart of Jesus. Man, that is um, it's a good, you know, sort of, segue to our sort of last question that we ask everyone that we have on the pod, um, which is, you know, as it relates to race and, and white supremacy, which is so deeply entrenched in what you were just talking about, what can, what we'll call well-meaning white people, you know, some people call them allies, some people call them anti-racists, what can those people do to help combat these effects that we're seeing of, of, racism and, and white supremacy and poverty and, and disproportionate punishment like you were just talking about and, and the horrors that we're seeing in these sort of urban communities, especially. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, it's as, a big one, too. I know. I'm sorry. No, I, it's a great one. I, I, the starting point, I think we, we, we have to start by, um, by saying that we, we, we need to recognize our social location right? That, that we're born into a certain place in this world because of the color of our skin, among other things. And um, I heard someone give a good definition of uh, entitlement, and they said entitlement is being born on third base and thinking you hit a triple. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, so we just don't realize that we were born in a certain place that's different from where other people uh, find themselves starting this life. And that I should, and that, I should interject and say that a, a friend of mine, a black friend of mine, talked about being black as being born on probation. 
Mm, Whereas mm. everything, it's everything's heightened. Every risk is heightened. So just throwing that in there too. <laughs> yeah, and and I I think that sometimes our reaction to this is to say that we're colorblind, and um and I think what we need to do is actually see the world in color to see that God has created uh, different people uh, and different ethnicities and and that that diversity is beautiful. So. Um, uh, you know, oneness doesn't mean sameness and, and that we, we celebrate that diversity. Um, but we also honor that our criminal justice system, our policing, our capitalist system is not colorblind. Um, and, um, you know, the Freakonomic studies where the exact same uh, resume was given, right? You've probably seen those where like the only thing that was different on the resumes was the name. Right. And one name was Shannon, the other was Shaniqua. You know, one name was Michael, the other was Mohammed. And, uh, and, and yet the white sounding name over and over, you know, is the one that often gets the job. And so we, we, I think we got to recognize that. But then I also think that uh, two other thoughts on this. One of them is that we often don't have eyes to see until we have the humility to kind of realize that there there's other people that we need to listen to and learn from the lens through which they've seen the world. And so I do think that there's something to relationships, um, really authentic relationships that take time over, you know, take time to grow with someone who's diverse than us. So if all of our circles are white, we mm-hmm. see the world a certain way. And so I think white folks in particular need to intentionally put ourselves in places where we are a minority more often. Uh, we're used to being kind of the majority in the room. And, and so we need to submit ourselves to leaders of color. We need to join organizations led by leaders of color. And we need to think about what we're reading. Like, how, are, are the books that I've read this year, are, are they written by white men? Are they written by women? Are they written by leaders of color? Because all of those things, I think, are helping to protect and fortify our whiteness. And, and they, they kind of blind us to some of the, uh, the, the other realities that folks are facing. Um, so I'm very concerned about our country right now. I think we're kind of in a cold civil war and, and, and we have some, um, uh, until white folks there, you know, there's what a lot of folks are calling white fragility, right? This kind of blowback, or I think it's, uh, uh, Van Jones that called it white lash, you know, mm-hmm. backlash mm-hmm. after uh, Barack Obama, where white folks are literally scrambling to retain power. And when we hear like "Make America Great Again," many folks are saying "Make America White," you know, white again, or make. And so we got to look even at our founding documents and the way that we've. Um, remembered history. This is what the statues are about, you know, or how we remember Christopher Columbus <laughs> and we right. sanitize our history. Because, you know, Brian Stevenson and so many others have said so well that um, many of our countries uh, have very terrible histories. But what's unique about America is that we've created theologies and mythology that actually justify that evil. And, 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 and we, we've created a way of sanctifying the evil and ignoring it. And we sure can't get our future right until we get our history right. Well, Shane, you've given us a lot to think about. So thank you for that. But also, yeah, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Absolutely. Think the world of y'all. Let's hang out sometime in Philly and uh, do the podcast again.
now, as usual, we will leave you with our action item. Um, this episode's action item is pretty simple. Um, I would challenge our listeners to find a black-owned business that sells something that you buy regularly and make that your place where you buy that thing. So be a repeat customer at a black-owned business, even if it's out of your way a little bit, even if it's a little bit more expensive than the place you go for your thing, become a customer there and make it a part of your routine and a part of your daily household errands and your, and your, your shopping. And tell your friends about it, about the business and how much you like it and encourage them to go there. It's a reasonable ask. Support black and brown businesses regularly. So that's the challenge for, for this episode. Easy enough. This episode of Black Anne was written and produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins, and was edited by me. Our theme music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's the number five, fifthchildmusic.com. Black Anne is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, tell your friends about us. It really helps us out. 